Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Lord God, we thank you that where there is confusion, you bring clarity. Pray that you would do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple years ago, I was a provisional elder for a church plant in a distant place in Wisconsin. And the pastor of that church plant reached out to me and the other provisional elders as this small church because he was facing a, a difficult, confusing situation. You see, there was a man in his church who was in his 20s who had grown up in the church and professed faith in Jesus in high school and seemed to follow Jesus, um, but during those 10 years struggled with gender identity. Uh, He believed that he was uh, a, a woman trapped in a man's body. And so during the time of this church plant, this small little church, uh, this man decided to start presenting himself as a woman. Uh, and so he showed up one week to church and to community group as, as a man with a man's name. And then the next week asked people to start calling him by a woman's name. And you can imagine how confusing this was for the people of the church and the children of the church to observe something like this. Uh, You could even see confusion in his own life as we sought to love him and care for him well. As we talked to him and and engaged him and and tried to encourage him, we asked him questions. Um, You know, one of the things that was really interesting is that he uh, was in a relationship with a female, and I asked the question, would you consider that a heterosexual relationship? And he said, no. And so it was very confusing, and our heart broke for this man. Uh, because he had a hard struggle that he was going through. Eventually, after lots of research and talk and prayer and and shepherding, we finally said, hey, you need to present yourself as a man. This is how God has created you. We love you. We care for you. We know there are going to be struggles with this, and we are here to walk with you in this struggle. We live in a culture that is very confused about gender. Amen? We live in a culture where Um, family members uh, no longer go by he or she, but by they. We live in a culture where at their workplace, they're now asking you how you want to be identified over email. We live in a culture where our nieces or our nephews now want to be our nieces. And there is a lot of confusion when it comes to gender. And in a church of this size, I'm guessing there are some of you here today who are struggling with your own gender identity, and you are struggling with it. And it is hard And I want to make sure you hear this very clearly. I am so glad you are here because God loves you and this church loves you. And this is a safe place to wrestle with some of those struggles. But I also think you are here today uh, because it is a divine appointment. You are not here by accident, but God has something good to say to you. And he has a church of loving people who would love uh, to encourage you to walk faithfully with God. But this 
reality of gender confusion is not something that is new. It actually existed in the times that the scripture was written. And that's why we have this passage today. God is writing to give us clarity on the beauty of gender and the roles of gender and the uniqueness of gender and how we are to fulfill those genders given to us by God himself. God is not unclear. God is crystal clear because his design for gender is beautiful. So if you would please open up to 1 Timothy chapter 2, we will be looking at verses 8 through 15 today. And uh, this week we will be focused on women in the church. The next two weeks we will be focused more on men in the church. But as you turn there, do want to remind you uh, the purpose of Paul writing this letter. Paul wrote this letter as he says in chapter 3, that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar of buttress and of the truth. And so Paul is writing this to, so that we might understand how the church is supposed to operate, to give us God's blueprints for the church, and now here in these passages when it comes to gender. So let's look together, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 through 15. This is God's word. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's pray again. God, help us not to dismiss your word. Help us not to misuse this word in abusive ways. Help us to understand this word rightly and apply it and celebrate the beauty of women that you have created. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a question. What makes a woman beautiful? If you were at your workplace or with friends and they were to ask you this question, what makes a woman beautiful? What would you say? This question is important for women who seek to embrace and enjoy and faithfully express the beauty of womanhood. But this question is also important for men who are either seeking to find a beautiful woman or foster and support a beautiful woman. This question is also important for us as a church as we are called to help guide and support women towards fulfilling the beauty that God has given to them. And so what makes a woman Beautiful. That is what we are looking at in today's passage, specifically in the church. And there are a lot of hard things in this passage, but please give me opportunities to explain it, and I think it will be helpful. So first, we see a beautiful woman adorned properly. We will circle back to verse 8, but let's look at verse 9. It says, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, or sanity. This word adorn means to ornament or to garnish. 
Uh, you can think of it as a Christmas tree. It is adorned with various ornaments as well as with lights and a star on top. But how is a woman to adorn or ornament herself? I cannot imagine how hard it is to be a woman in today's culture. There is nothing wrong with a woman wanting to look beautiful and dress pretty. But nearly every magazine cover, nearly every reality TV show, nearly every female pop star is challenging you to adorn yourself in disrespectful and immodest ways. To wear skin-tight clothing, to have plunging necklines, and to wear skimpy outfits. Because sadly, if you do this, you will be noticed. You will be cherished, and you will be taken care of. See, these desires are good desires, to be noticed, to be cherished, and to be taken care of, but they are not meant to be fulfilled by every guy passing by you on the street. These desires are to be fulfilled first and foremost by your heavenly father, and then by your earthly father, and finally by your husband. Now, respectable and modest apparel is always a bit cultural, even from Florida up to Wisconsin, I think. And so, ladies, I want to encourage you, especially teenage girls, if you want to know if your dress is modest and respectable and honoring to God, ask your parents. I know they are not fashion whizzes. I know they don't know the current trends and what is cool and what is not cool. I know they don't know those things, but they do know what is modest and immodest. So I encourage you not to not to, not to shrink back or to repel their feedback, but to actually welcome it and ask for it. Moms and dads, this may mean that you have to start being the bad guy or the bad mom. Maybe you will make your daughter cry or maybe even your son cry because I think it applies to men as well. Parenting is hard. It is not a popularity contest. You may have to say, listen, honey, I love you and I want you to be respectable and modest and you are not going out in that tonight. And they may be very angry with you. But this is what God says is beautiful. He continues, verse 9, Likewise also that a woman should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls and costly attire. I know there are some here like, why did I braid my hair today? I can't believe I braided my hair today. This, this is more of a cultural application uh, of the first part of the verse, to, 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 in that time to braid your hair and wear gold and pearls or costly attire uh, was to really flaunt your beauty and to flaunt your wealth. Like if you came into church with a Vera Wang outfit on or something like that. But it also says, I don't even know if I said that right. Did I say that right? Maybe I just said I, I know so little about fashion. Um, <laughs> Dressing like this flaunts wealth and, and, and beauty, but the other thing it does is it actually says to the men, hey, I'm available, right? It'd be like a woman dressing scantily and coming into church without a wedding ring. That's kind of what Paul is pushing back against. And so Paul says, don't do this, especially in the church, because the primary purpose of coming to church is not to meet friends. It's not to meet a boyfriend or a girlfriend. The primary purpose you come to church is actually to meet with God. It's to worship God to enjoy God, to delight in God. Now, I hope at church you have friends. And church is a great place to meet a boyfriend or a girlfriend. But that is not the primary purpose we come to church. The primary purpose we come to church is to give glory to God. And if you dress in a way that is distracting to your brothers in Christ, you are stealing the worship and the glory that is due to God and transferring it to yourself. 
Paul continues to say that proper adornment is not only outwardly on the body, but also of the soul. Verse 10, he says, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Ladies, verse 9 and 10 might be verses you'd want to put on your mirror as you are reminded of where true beauty is. I love how commentator Donald Guthrie summarizes this saying that the adornment that God is looking for is, quote, lies not in what she herself puts on, but in the loving service she gives out. Not in what she puts on, but in the loving service she gives out. To push this a little bit deeper into corporate worship, as Paul is doing, it might be worth asking ladies and guys this question. Do you spend more time preparing your hair or your heart for corporate worship? I know that seems like a silly question, but do you spend more time in the mirror making sure you look beautiful for all these people, or do you spend more time in prayer and journaling and studying the passage saying, Lord, I want to come and hear from you this morning? And so a beautiful woman is one who adorns herself properly, both outwardly and inwardly, with respectable and proper and humble attire and seeking to grow and do works of godliness because she has been noticed and cherished and taken care of by the God that she comes to worship on Sunday mornings. And so a beautiful woman adorns properly. Secondly, a beautiful woman learns quietly. Now, you're probably saying it doesn't say she doesn't throw things at the pastor. I understand that, but let me explain a little bit. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I know it may not seem like this at first, but Paul is actually elevating women in this culture. You see, at that time, women did not receive an education unless she was extremely wealthy and had nothing else to do. And they never were thought of being disciples in the synagogues. In fact, they were put on the other side of the synagogue from the men. And yet here, Paul is exhorting women to learn, to be disciples of Jesus. But with these quali qualifications, that they would do it quietly and with all submissiveness. Now, this passage, this verse and the next verse have been hotly contested and detested, especially in the past 20 to 30 years of the church. Not because it is hard to understand, but because it is hard to swallow. And for that reason, there are many who have written tons of books to simply try to make these verses not say what they clearly say. They have worked very hard to make these verses mean nothing at all. One reason people say that we can ignore these words is because it was simply cultural, that Timothy was simply writing to the church in Ephesus who had these struggles, and it was only for them in their point in time. But you'll see in the next verse, Timothy says, this is how they do church in their own church. Furthermore, in 1 Corinthians 14, it says this. It says, for God is not a God of confusion. So this is to a different church, but of peace. And in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law, that is the Bible, the Old Testament also says. I do think scripture means something. This can't mean nothing. You see, at Jacob's Well, we believe that all scripture is breathed out by God. And not only that, it's actually useful for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. Even when it says hard things like this, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, what does this mean? What is Paul communicating? Uh, my, my mom tells the story of when she was growing up, she would go fishing with her dad. And, and her dad would say, uh, you can't talk when we're fishing because you'll scare all the fish away. She later found out that is completely untrue. He just wanted her not to talk. 
while they were fishing because he would get annoyed with it. And so he tell, you're going to scare the fish away. Is this what Paul's doing? Is Paul merely just trying to stop women from talking? At first glance, it may appear that way. Like he just wants women to put duct tape across their mouth when they walk into the sanctuary. But as we look into the next verse, I think it provides a little bit more clarity. So verse 11 again, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach. That is the regular preaching and teaching of God's word, as I'll explain more here, or to exercise authority over a man. That is speaking of the role of eldership, which will come up in next week's passage. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So when we read verses like this that are very hard to wrap our minds around, and there isn't a whole lot of details, what is helpful is to let Scripture interpret Scripture, to see what other places in the Bible say about this topic of women in corporate worship and speaking in corporate worship. So I want to briefly, if it's possible, take a quick survey of the entire Bible. Can we try to do that really quickly? First, I want to look at the role of women in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there are prophetesses. The first was Miriam, the sister of Aaron. In Exodus 15, 1, after Israel crosses the Red Sea, in the company of all of Israel, both men and women, Moses proclaims the greatness of the Lord and exalts God and leads the people in song and worship. And then we get down to the second half of chapter 15. And it says this, it says, Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women... All the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. Miriam was proclaiming the goodness of God. She was leading them in singing to God, but only among women. Another prophetess in the Old Testament, this is very interesting, is Huldah. She served under a godly king, Josiah, uh, who was seeking to reform the worship of the people of God. Uh, And working in the temple, they found the, the Bible, the Pentateuch, the first five books. And Josiah realized that the people of God had been sinning against God horrifically for a really long time. And he was in the fear of the judgment of God. And he grieved and he repented. And so the king commands his male priest and two other male servants to go and inquire of the Lord on how they should respond to all of their sin. And interestingly enough, this is very fascinating, These men did not go to the male prophet Zephaniah. They did not go to the male prophet Jeremiah, who were no slouches. They wrote scripture. But instead, they went to the female prophetess, Huldah, probably because they have heard the Lord speak through Huldah before. And they came to her and inquired of the Lord before her. And we hear Huldah proclaim in in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 18, this. She says this. She says, But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord. That's prophetic speech. Thus says the Lord. The God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, that is in the scriptures, because your heart was penitent, repentant, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you declare, declares the Lord. And then it goes on. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see the disaster that I will bring upon this place. That's for future unrepentant generations. 
And they brought the word to the king. And so here in this passage, and in the broader passage, three times this prophetess says, thus saith the Lord, and prophesies future destruction on Israel, but also current mercy and grace and blessing on the current king who is repentant. There are other prophetesses in the Old Testament. For example, Deborah, who was both a prophetess and a judge. And she would settle disputes. She would give godly wisdom within the courtroom. However, and I think this is the important distinction, that unlike the male prophets, Deborah nor Miriam nor Huldah ever publicly proclaimed the oracles of God to the people of God. Nor did they write down such oracles to become sacred scripture. For the women, it was always done in private settings or amongst women. Furthermore, the regular preaching and teaching of God's word in the Old Testament was not entrusted to prophets. It was entrusted to the priests who were the sons of Aaron, who were males. Now, what about in Jesus' ministry? He was sinless, right? What did he think? Jesus had many women disciples who, to be honest, were better than the male disciples. I mean, it was the women disciples who stayed with him all the way to the cross and watched him be sacrificed. It was the woman disciples who watched his body buried in the grave. It was the woman disciples who came on the first day courageously to anoint his body with oil, who, who experienced the resurrection, who saw the resurrection, and then went to the other male disciples to proclaim the resurrection. Women were instrumental disciples of Jesus. Even in the story of the name of our church, Jake as well, it's a story about a woman who encounters Jesus and goes and tells her city about Jesus and they come back and encounter Jesus for themselves and the town is transformed. Women are instrumental disciples of Jesus. But none of them were made apostles because apostles were commissioned to publicly preach and teach the word of God and hold the positions of authority in Christ's church. Now, what about the other parts of the New Testament? Well, we see a lot of consistency throughout scriptures. Women in ministry are celebrated, and some of their words are even recorded down in scripture. For example, you think of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the Magnificat, and the song that she wrote, and how that is recorded in scripture. But you also have women like Priscilla, who was a part of a husband and wife team that journeyed with the apostle Paul for many years. And when Apollos, the evangelist, came in town to teach, she and her husband pulled him aside privately and instructed him in the ways of Christianity more adequately. Paul also honors many women for their ministry in Romans 15 and encourages the Romans to welcome Phoebe with honor, for she has helped many. In Titus 2, women are encouraged to teach, to publicly teach other women and children. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says to the church, every woman who prays or prophesies, meaning he thinks women are praying and prophesying in the church. And yet just a few verses later, and here's where the confusion I think is magnified, just a few chapters later, he says, women should keep silent in the church for they are not permitted to speak. This is a bit confusing, understandably. Because Paul, in the same letter, says women pray and prophesy in the church, but they're not supposed to speak. So how does that work together? 
One of the things I love about our denomination is that they address hard topics like this head on. And occasionally they will put together a study committee of the best and brightest people from our denomination to study these things from the scripture and to give us a pastoral response that is rooted in the scripture. And they, they spend like, I think, $80,000 just to get all these people together to do this. So it's a big deal. And they just recently published one on human sexuality. You can Google it and find it. But about five years ago, they published a paper entitled Women Serving in the Ministry of the Church. And yes, there were women on this committee, women who were passionate about women in ministry. And much of what I just shared is from that report or a portion of that report. And I actually have copies of it. I'll mention to you later available for you. But in that paper, it summarizes women's roles in the church in this way. It says this, conclusion, women instructed men, but often in limited and private settings. They advised and rebuked men, great and small. Women counseled men who listened and adopted their ideas. They taught and prophesied, giving messages with theological content. Nonetheless, Scripture has no example of a woman preaching. Women led beside men in Israel and the church, but no woman held the rank of Abraham, Moses, David, Elijah, Isaiah, Peter, or Paul as principal leader. I'll share more from this report later. But first, let's go back to this passage and see more of why Paul says these things. Okay, so verse 11 again. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Again, regarding public preaching, proclamation of God's word and eldership. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, why does Paul give this command? Is it because he's misogynistic? Is it because he's sexist? Is it because he doesn't like women? Is it because it's a, a particular cultural thing in the church that he is writing to? Verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. This structure of male headship and spiritual leadership is actually rooted in the created order. God created Adam from the dust of the ground. And then before sin entered into the world, we read this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now this word helper is not a demeaning word at all. God calls himself the helper, same Hebrew word for the people of God. And so it is not a demeaning word. But he is making a point that in created order, men are created to be spiritual leaders in the marriage. And this is repeated throughout the scriptures, especially in Ephesians chapter 5. And he is to do this spiritual leadership sacrificially, lovingly, as Christ is the spiritual leader of his bride, the church. You know, I have a friend who works at a Christian school and he has observed that in the families in his church that are, that are promoting female elders, promoting female preachers and pastors, um, they still want the husbands to be spiritual leaders in their home. Now, this is problematic and confusing because how is a man supposed to be a spiritual leader over his wife, who is his elder, maybe pastor, who is supposed to be a spiritual leader over him? God is not a God of disorder, but of order. And he has instituted an authority structure in marriage and in the church, not to be used abusively, but caringly and lovingly. Now, this does not mean that women are of lesser value in any way, shape, or form. And I think a great illustration of this is the Trinity. You know, there is an authority structure in the Trinity. God the Father has authority over God the Son, who has authority over God the Holy Spirit. God the Son is submissive to the Father. God the Holy Spirit is submissive to the Son. And yet they are all equally God. 
They're of equal value and worth. And when they operate within their God-given roles and authority structure, it is their, their beauty shines the brightest. In the same way, when men and women fulfill their God-given roles and authority structure, it shines the beauty of Christ's church. And when women or men seek to pervert God's plan or rearrange the spiritual authority structure, it does not bring beauty, it brings misery. And that's what Paul shows us here in verse 14. Verse 14, look there with me, says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. You see, in the garden, Eve usurped Adam's spiritual leadership. But Adam passively relinquished that spiritual leadership to Eve. This gender role reversal led to Eve eating the forbidden fruit because Adam stayed silent and it brought death and destruction into the world. And then when God comes and pronounces the consequences for their disobedience, it has to do with gender and authority. Believe it or not, maybe you never saw that before. Genesis 3.16 says this. It says, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth Children, something uniquely female. Your desires shall be contrary to your husband, meaning that you will fight against him. You will seek to usurp his spiritual leadership. But he shall rule over you, meaning that he will do it in a demeaning, harsh, and unloving way, which is sinful. And then verse 17, it continues in Genesis 3 and says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, abdicating your spiritual leadership that God has placed you in in marriage, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In verses 13 through 14 of 1 Timothy 2, Paul is claiming that this authority structure in the church is not rooted in culture, but it is rooted in creation, in God's beautiful design of creation. And when we reverse that created order, misery comes about. Later in our denomination position paper on women in ministry, it says this. Again, it's kind of a conclusion on male-female partnership. It says, because 1 Timothy occupies a central place in all discussions of women in ministry, it was examined in detail Women should learn the faith and share their knowledge in some settings. They should not become the principal instructor and defender of the faith in the institutional church. This has been God's plan and order from the beginning, creation, in which women thrive and they live out their faith. And so Paul is proposing consistency of spiritual leadership in the home and in the church. Now, this does not mean that men... Uh, are to be abusive in any way, shape, or form in their home. They are to be the picture of Christ, to cherish and to love and to serve their wife sacrificially. Nor does it mean men are supposed to vacate this role and do something different than leading their family. And one thing I want to make sure I'm clear about before we move on to the final point is that if, if you and this, ladies, have heard me say there is no place for you to use your gifts in the church, you're misunderstanding me. I haven't communicated well because women are an in, indispensable part of the church. And if God has given you leadership qualities, even public speaking qualities, there are lots of places that we would love for you to serve in the church. God has gifted you and God wants you to use those gifts to bless the church in accordance with God's word. All right. So beautiful woman. This goes like from 
from easy to harder as we go. A beautiful woman adorns properly with respectable and proper attire, seeking godliness. Secondly, learns quietly, which does not mean they don't talk, they don't pray up here. We see, I think I skipped, but we see examples of women praying in Acts chapter 2 as well as in the 1 Corinthians passage. But this means she does not usurp God's design for men to be the primary preachers and spiritual leaders of the church. But finally, a beautiful woman births savingly. Okay, hold on for this. Verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing. What in the world, right? I mean, like, what in the world does that mean? If they continued in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I know you're probably wondering, what religion did I stumble into? This does not sound like Christianity. This seems bizarre. I love what the ESV Study Bible says about this verse. It says, this is a notoriously difficult to understand verse. I would add to that, it's a notoriously difficult to preach verse. But I want to provide a little bit of clarity, because Honestly, every preacher I listen to skipped this verse, but I think it's important to look at it. Let's first discount what it can't mean. It cannot mean that women are justified or declared righteous, saved in that way by having babies, right? As if a single woman or a woman who is barren could not be saved or that a woman who has many, many men that she's sleeping with could be uber saved, right? Because she has so many babies. It cannot mean that. It would be contrary to everything Paul has preached and taught his entire ministry, that salvation is by grace through faith and not by good works. And so, so what does it mean? Well, we'll take it in two parts uh, because I think there are two parts to this. If you see the first part of the verse, verse 15, she is singular. It's a singular uh, pronoun. Uh, but in the second part of verse 15, it is plural. It is they. And I think that's an important distinction. So let's, let's look at the first part first. Starting in verse 14, it says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, talking about Eve, was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. Who is the singular she that Paul is talking about? Well, most likely it is Eve who he was just talking about. That Eve would be saved through childbearing. Now, how does that work? Well, after Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit and brought death and destruction into the world, God makes a promise to Satan, to the serpent. And he says this in Genesis 3.15, he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is the first proclamation of the gospel in the Bible. And in this proclamation of the gospel, God promises us two things. One, that Eve will have offspring that she will give birth. But secondly, her offspring will crush the head of Satan. Now, who would this offspring be, this singular offspring? Well, Paul told us very clearly in last chapter, he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus, Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. Jesus was the seed that crushed the head of Satan by triumphing over him on the cross and through the resurrection, taking on our penalty of sin and giving us new life in him. To expand this wider to women today, women by virtue of their anatomy are able to birth children, having a unique and wonderful role that men do not have and the kingdom of God's redemption. Uh, David Gallagher, our youth dude, sorry, no, David Steinbarger, it's very confusing. David Steinbarger, our youth dude, shared with me this week um, 
that he is very jealous of his wife, that he wishes he could have birthed their children. He gave me permission to share this, so, all right. Um, After going through labor, I'm guessing Beth wishes he could have had their children as well. Um, But David said he wished he could experience the bonding that happens when a child is in the womb and the bonding that happens when a mother nurses her child. But here's the thing. David does not have that privilege, nor any man have that privilege. And the reason why is because God made men and women gloriously different, with different complementary roles. And God has entrusted childbirthing to women probably because the guys would lose the child or break the child or something like that. But God has entrusted childbirthing to women. And Paul is reminding the women of their beautiful and unique role in the kingdom of God. And not only that, it is through the woman that God continues to grow his kingdom. If you're here last year, you know there was like six weeks in a row we had a baby of the week club. And I said to my friends, we are out procreating the competition. Like we're out procreating the pagans. You know, unlike David, I am not jealous of my wife at all. I saw the pain that she went through. Maybe I'm not man enough. Maybe I'm not woman enough. I don't know how that works, but I am not jealous of my wife at all. But the ability to give birth is a valuable and precious and sacrificial role in the kingdom of God, a role that is not given to men, but entrusted to women. And it spreads the salvation of God and the kingdom of God as you raise your children to love Jesus and to share Jesus with others. So verse 15 again, yet she, singular, will be saved through childbearing if they, plural, females, or maybe females and men, if they continue in faith. This is how we are saved, by grace, through faith in Christ, and love and holiness with self-control. These are proofs that women uh, are of saving faith when they show this type of godliness, when she is marked by love, holiness, and distinct from the world, and self-control. Let me end with this and keep your Bibles open because I'm going to go back to verse 8 here. And this is going to take a little bit. Sorry, it's hard to fit everything in uh, on a passage like this. But as I read today's passage, uh, even though I'm not a woman, it was very personal to me. I could not help but think about my daughter and my three sons. For my daughter, my hope is that this passage would help her understand what it means to be a beautiful woman, especially in the church, and to adorn herself with modesty and with godliness. For my sons, my hope is this passage would help teach them how to identify a truly beautiful woman, not in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of God, because while the world looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. Furthermore, I could not help but think about my wife, who is absolutely beautiful, both physically, but even more important, spiritually. She is not perfect, and she will be the first to tell you that, but she, in so many ways, models the beauty of women that God has described in his word. She is the excellent wife in Proverbs 31. She has leadership roles in her workplace in classical conversations. She is a celebrity at the YMCA because she teaches and does an amazing job. She looks well to the way of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness, as Proverbs 31 says. And I'm okay praising her because Proverbs 31:30 says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Not only did this passage make me think of my daughters, my daughter and my sons and my wife, but it was also very convicting for me. You see, I think one of the reasons 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15 is so hard for women to swallow is because men in large part have failed to fulfill 1 Timothy chapter 2, 
verse 8. Look at verse 8 there with me, if you would. This is God's calling on men. And notice it comes directly before he lays out the beauty of a woman. Verse 8 says, I desire then that in every place the men, males, should pray, lifting holy hands, that is, interceding on behalf of the congregation without anger or quarreling. In this verse, you may not see it, but Paul addresses what men should do, that they should be spiritual leaders, but also what men shouldn't do, that they should not do this with quarreling or with anger. And in this, he is addressing the two greatest failures of men when it comes to spiritual leadership, passivity and domineering attitude. There's a temptation to passivity for men to disengage from spiritual leadership and to leave it up to the wife or to the youth pastor or to the church. And there's a temptation for men to be domineering, to be angry and quarrelsome because the wives and kids are not doing things that they want. And the easiest way to correct it is through getting loud. While I've not abandoned my family, nor do I hit or beat my family, this is convicting for me because I know I struggle with both of these. I struggle with passivity and spiritual leadership because I get frustrated and because I get lazy. And I struggle at times with domineering and spiritual leadership because it is quicker than being gentle. And it's because of my sin struggles that makes it harder for my wife to be the beautiful woman that God has created her to be. Ladies, maybe you can relate to that. Even when men fail you, and they will fail you, 100% guarantee, except for Jesus, they will fail you. God has still called you to be beautiful, not in the ways of the world, but in the ways that he has prescribed. Let me end with this illustration. There was, there's an older couple in our congregation, um, and they'll probably know who they are, but they were, they're very heavily uh, invested in the church, serving in the church, um, but they had a horrible marriage. Uh, no other way to put it, they hated each other. And they were waiting for their kids to move out of the house so they could separate and be in their own places and maybe even get a divorce and leave the faith. But then God stepped in and miraculously restored their marriage. Um, it's not perfect, but it's good. And they're seeking to minister to other couples who have difficult marriages. And I remember the wife saying to me after they kind of went through this journey, she said, one of the best things for our marriage was ballroom dancing. I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, in ballroom dancing, like in marriage, you can't have two leaders. I was always trying to lead my husband, and he was unwilling to lead our family, and it was miserable. In ballroom dancing, the, the man has to lead the wife, and she has to follow in a complimentary way. And so as the husband brings his right foot back, she has to bring her left foot forward. The wife might rightfully remind the husband or correct her husband when he gets out of whack, but if she tries to take over and lead her husband, it brings disaster because you cannot have two leaders when you're ballroom dancing. Men and women in the church have complementary roles. Sometimes it's messy. Sometimes we step on each other's feet. Many times men need correction and encouragement from women in the church. But nonetheless, it is a gospel dance of two genders surrendering to their designers, their creator's design for gender. My hope, and this last thing, my hope for Jacobswell Church is that as we study God's blueprints for the church, that we would not shy away or be ashamed by the God-given beauty of men and women in the church and in the family, but that we would embrace these, celebrate them, and even challenge one another to live out our God-given maleness and femaleness with fervor and delight and faithfulness to God. Let's pray. 
Lord, there is a lot in this passage, a lot to comprehend and to process and to think about. Maybe some more for others. Maybe some are here today and they're angry. Maybe some are here and they are too happy. God, pray that you would help us to see the beauty of gender, that we would fulfill these roles with joy, with faithfulness, with fervor, with grace, with mercy, with love, that we would cherish one another, delight in one another, and celebrate how you have created us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.